Welcome back, everybody. Our thanks to Brian Freitas for joining us in the previous segment. All right, Dave. As we promised earlier in the show, we are going to devote some time to talk about what's been happening with Star Trek and the Star Trek fan films because it happens to involve two of our favorite things, Star Trek and independent content creators. Yeah, and copyright. So, oh my God, it's a a perfect mesh for this show. It really is. It's right in our wheelhouse. Uh, A few weeks ago on the show, you and I talked about this ongoing lawsuit between CBS and Paramount on one side, the right. guys who own Star Trek, and the makers of a fan film in production called Star Trek Axanar. Right, right. Uh, the former is trying to shut down the latter's production, and a lot of Star Trek fans are upset. They're saying, look, we're not hurting anyone. We're just trying to honor the Star Trek brand, the Star Trek franchise that we love so much. And the last time we talked about this, you and I, the mm-hmm. reports, and they seem to be good news, were that CBS and Paramount were going to drop the lawsuit. Right, I think J.J. Abrams came out and had this whole thing. It's like, all right, guys, you know what? This is not. This, yeah. this is good for no one. Stop hey, being mean to the fans. Yeah, we all love this. Like, okay, we're, we're, let, let's go. Let's finish it. And I think everyone thought like, oh, good. You know what? It's going to go away. Yeah, and, and we were we were sort of celebrating on the show. Yeah. But now it appears that, that that's, that's not the case, that the lawsuit is still ongoing and it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. And so now we have this this week, and this is... Crazy. Right. Uh, CBS and Paramount this week released a set of, quote, fan film guidelines on their Star Trek website in which they said, basically, if you want to make a Star Trek fan film, you have to follow these rules. And you read these rules, Dave. Oh, yay. Yeah, good. Rules. Yeah. yeah. They're, these rules are ridiculous. It, it, uh, exceedingly so. Yeah. One of the guidelines is that the film, the fan films, cannot be more than 15 minutes and no multi-episode story can be more than 30 minutes. <laughs> So basically, all the fan films that have been made, including Star Trek Axanar, that are more than fifteen minutes, yeah, like they all they all get shut yeah. down. It's like The Simpsons with a Herman. This baby can take a four megaton blast. No more, no less. <laughs> I might be the only person who gets that reference, but that's very funny. And look, I'm an IP lawyer. We work. You and I. We work in copyrights and trademarks. We do. And I, I'm. You know, we we believe they should be respected. We are pro. Property rights. Yes. <laughs> um, and we spent whole episodes on this show, in fact, teaching artists how to protect their copyrights, how to protect their trademarks. We, uh-huh. we explain the law on this stuff all the time. But there's another side to this. In business, there always has to be a balance between protecting your intellectual property, but also keeping your fans happy. These, right. these fan films, Axanar, mm-hmm. they don't hurt CBS and Paramount. Nobody's, nobody's, you know, it's not taking any money out of their pocket. Nobody sees these two things as competitors. What Axanar is, is it's free advertising. It's cultivating fan engagement and suing your fans for making tribute films. It's, right. it's biting the hands that feed you. Yeah, the PR department probably is fighting with the legal department. Yeah, like, what are imagine. you people doing? We, we got a yeah. movie coming out in a couple weeks. Stop pissing yeah. the fans off. And J.J. was like, guys, guys, let's do it. And they're like, shut up, Star Wars boy. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. But thankfully... Yeah. You and I, we we have a great opportunity to talk about this. Yeah, this is a real treat. Yeah, no, I'm excited for this. So somebody who's actually in the thick of all this, uh, joining us now on the Break the Business podcast, the director of the Star Trek Axanar film project, Robert Meyer Burnett. Hey, Robert, how are you? I am uh, Brian Cage. It's a great honor to be on the show. Oh. Uh, uh, it's going to be nice to talk to proper professionals and those working in the legal profession about this, as opposed to the armchair lawyers I normally talk to on Twitter. Well, it would normally be nice to talk to uh, professionals about this. Unfortunately, you're stuck with us, but yeah. I hope you can get through that okay. 
Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm very honored and privileged to be here. Oh, that's very Thank kind. You. Uh, before we had you on, Robert, uh, before we started recording, we were checking out your IMDb page, and you got some serious Trekkie bona fides, my friend. You've worked on a bunch of Star Trek documentaries and other programs. Uh, you seem to be a good caretaker of the Star Trek universe. Can you can you give the folks a taste of your resume? Well, I'll tell you. Um, back in the mid '90s. I made a, for the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, I made a video that you can watch on YouTube called Star Trek Eternal. And, it, you know, it's just a five-minute, I, I was working on an award show where I had to do a Star Trek tribute. And so I made this five-minute video using a piece of John Williams music from the Nixon soundtrack because I thought it was, it was very cool. The, I forgot about that movie. <laughs> Yeah, and the piece was called The 60s, The Tumultuous Decade, and it was just, it's a very cool piece of music. So I cut this five-minute video, and that video was, I made a, a VHS tape of it and gave it out to people, because people asked me for it, and over one summer, I got letters from all over the country, indeed, some international letters asking me for a copy of this video, because this was, of course, pre-internet, and nobody could get it. So I must have mailed out two, three hundred copies of that video. And one day I get a phone call from this company called Landmark Entertainment. And they asked me to come in. They said, are you the guy who made Star Trek Eternal? I'm like, uh, yeah. So they call me in and Landmark Entertainment was a company run by Gary Goddard, who actually directed the He-Man live action movie, Masters of the Universe. Ha! Wow. The canon movie He-Man? <laughs> Yeah, so so they were in the process of building the eighty million dollar Star Trek experience at the in Las Vegas. Vegas. Yes, and they they said, well, look, we need somebody to edit all of the videos that you'll see as you walk through the attraction. And so I was in a room with this guy. His name's Ted, I think. And um, he said, you know, we really liked your little. Oh, how well do you know Star Trek? I said, well, you know, I'm, I've I've been watching the show since I was three. I'm a fanatical, lifelong Star Trek fan. Um, you know, uh, what do you want to know? And he said, well, what what if uh, what if uh, I needed to find a shot of say a uh, uh, Romulan stabbing a Klingon? And I said, well, you'd probably the first place I would look is the sixth season Next Generation episode Birthright Part Two. <laughs> and, and he just looked at me and he goes. He, he goes, are you kidding? I said, well, no, in it there's this Romulan uh, colony where they've been keeping these Klingon prisoners for years rather than murder them. But I know that there's some scuffling and shots of Klingons with knives, with, with uh, mechlefs or whatever, Klingon daggers, Bokhtung daggers or whatever. You might want to look there. <laughs> and and he just looked at me like like I was kidding. But I'm like, no, you you, you just asked me a question. I answered it. <laughs> and, um, so uh, they gave me a job. So for uh, almost two years, all I did every day was for the first four months, I had to digitize every Star Trek episode that existed into the computer. So the 79 or the 80, if you include the cage, episodes of the original series, the 178 episodes of Next Generation, the first two seasons of Deep Space Nine, and the first year of Voyager. So I was paid thousands and thousands of dollars to watch star trek every day and digitize it in the computer you're kind of my hero yeah and, well then i spent the next <laughs> year editing various videos like i did a video about the borg and a video about the klingons you know and then 
I got a phone call from Paramount. And they said, hey, we saw this little video you made. And 1996 is, of course, the 30th anniversary of Star Trek. We would like to license your video. And I'm like, ah. uh, it's all your material. <laughs> well, yes, but, but you put it together in a very interesting way. And can we, we'd like to send it out to our licensees. And we'd love it if you would uh, redo the video with different music because they couldn't use the John Williams music. And could you tailor it like they, I had to do a Wesley Crusher-centric version of the video for younger people. Oh, there you and go, yeah. They used that video, and then they hired me as an official Star Trek consultant for Viacom licensing. Oh, my God. Best business and card my ever. First, <laughs> my, my first job was, of course, um, I had to write a bad review. I had to write a, a very long internal memo about Viacom Interactive was making a Voyager video game, and it was terrible. <laughs> And they, and they needed somebody from the outside to tell them it was terrible because they're in, internally, Viacom licensing didn't want to go tell Viacom Interactive, your game sucks. So, <laughs> so you so had to be the hatchet man? <laughs> now, you have to understand, when I say I love Star Trek, I mean, I, I've bought every single Star Trek novel ever published. I have every Star Trek reference book ever published. I, I mean, I am a fundamentalist Star Trek fan. And I, since I was very young, when in 1975, when uh, they released the Star Trek technical manual, the Franz Joseph technical manual, and then the famous Star Trek. Blueprint. I had that. <laughs> well, yeah. And in the technical manual, they, they said that there were 12 heavy cruiser class ships. The Enterprise is a heavy cruiser class. There were 12 made. And they gave the names of those 12, like the Congo and the Potemkin and the Hood, the Exeter and the Lexington. Well, subsequent to that, AMT models that put out the Enterprise model kit, they re-released that model, but it came with a decal sheet for all 12 of those ships. So, of course, I said to my mom, I'm like, Mom, I got to get 11 more models of the Enterprise. And my mom's like, why? She goes, well, that's crazy. And I said, no, no, no. I've got to build all 12 of the fleet. <laughs> I have to have all 12. I need a model of the Congo and the yeah. Lexington and the Intrepid. And I have to have them all. And then I had to build the ISS Enterprise, the Mirror Universe episode, uh, uh, Enterprise from Mirror Mirror, the episode when Spock has a beard. I needed, that means I needed 13 ships from the fleet. And, you know, I had, I did, I built all of them. So that's, I was a crazed Star Trek fanatic since I was little. So these jobs were like a dream come true. And, and the Viacom job didn't pay very well. So one day they said, well, you know, it's not going to pay a lot. It paid pretty well, actually. But they said, in addition to what we pay you, you can take whatever merchandise you might want. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. this, like, this was like, they had a room. And it was like a closet. You'd open it up, and there were samples of, like, Playmates Toys was making Star Trek figures. And I was collecting them. And they had figures in there that hadn't come out yet. They had, like, the toy of the Voyager. And they had the data in the, in the maroon tunic from Redemption Part 2, you know, that became a very rare figure. And they're like, yeah, you can just take what you want. So I'm like, these are the best jobs ever. <laughs> On the Star Trek experience, on one end, I'm 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 wandering onto the Star Trek lot. I, I mean, I got to go on to Paramount, the Paramount lot, to go into licensing to write stuff about Star Trek. Oh. Now, 
This is in 96. Now, I don't know if you guys knew this, but in 1998, I directed, I wrote and directed my first feature film. Uh, it's called Star Trek. Uh, it's not called Star Trek. Pardon me. It's called Free Enterprise. And Free Enterprise is a movie about myself and my friend Mark Altman, who I wrote it with, mm-hmm. who has a book coming out uh, this month called The 50-Year Mission. It's an oral history of the entire Star Trek franchise by everybody involved. But we made a movie about our obsession with Star Trek and specifically William Shatner. And we got William Shatner to star in it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you can get it. It's hard to get now because the, I'm trying to get a video release, a high-def video release. It's been released on video two other times before, and I would highly recommend tracking down the two-disc Anchor Bay version uh, of the disc. It's OOP, but it's worth getting. And it's, it's a comedy. And it got it got great reviews. We got great reviews in both trades in the New York Times, the LA Times. But it came out with hardly any distribution and hardly any fanfare, and it died a quick death at the box office. But I did get to make a movie with my childhood idol. Oh, that's uh, so cool. Which yeah. it, you know, it was amazing, and it was. What's interesting is because it, it came out theatrically. Uh, an interesting uh, tidbit about it was that it uh, came out on June fourth. 1999, which was the anniversary of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan's release, which came out in 1982. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And then after Free Enterprise came out, you know, I, I fell into the uh, DVD special features world that didn't exist. And I worked on everything from Lord of the Rings to Disney's Fantasia. I made a feature-length documentary about the making of Tron. But then... The piece de resistance was of my DVD special features producing career was working on the high definition restoration of Star Trek The Next Generation, where I created extensive documentaries for all seven seasons of the show. And I also worked on all four seasons of uh, Star Trek Enterprise for Blu-ray. Okay, so that's pretty cool. So basically, obviously... I think the picture is Ryan. He he's kind of a Star Trek fan. Yeah, yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah, obviously yeah, there. You know, but, you mediocre know, that, fan. That's amazing. He, you've done all that, and you've actually worked with Paramount, you know, CBS, Viacom, actually for Star Trek. So I mean, that's that that's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's that's, a, it's an interesting yeah. uh, twist in all this, and I imagine this has been a rough time for you recently, Robert, with the continuation of the Axonar lawsuit by CBS and Paramount. Despite the fact that J.J. Abrams said the suit would be over, and now with the release of these ridiculous fan film guidelines, uh, how are you feeling? Well, you know, it's it's very disheartening to me because as a literally a lifelong fan of Star Trek, I have spent my life going to conventions. And when I was growing up going to conventions, one of the cool things you'd find is fan-made product. And after the... Um, uh, release of the Franz Joseph Technical Manual and the Blueprints in 1975, there were many people that emulated that in their spare time. Like, you could get blueprints of the bridge or of a Klingon battlecruiser, or of you could even get blueprints of the grain uh, ships from the animated episode More Tribbles, More Troubles. And they were all done in the format of these officially released books. Uh, yet they were made by fans. Because nobody... Nobody is going to uh, make a, a officially released set of blueprints of an obscure animated series spaceship because there's no money. The, the eight right. people that would buy those, you know, there's never no company is ever going to be like, oh, yeah, man, we're going to license the animated series grain ships because 
everybody would want those because basically they take grain from one planet to another. Well, there's something <laughs> kids want to buy. You know, and, and so and that was the beginning. There was a very famous game that came out amongst Star Trek fans called Starfleet Battles. This was an unlicensed Star Trek game, but it was sold over the counter. It was released by a game company in the late 70s. And it used all of the major Star Trek spaceships and ships you hadn't seen. Like you hadn't seen the Gorn ship from Arena when Kirk fights the lizard monster. But the Gorn were part of the Gorn hegemony was part of this game. And this game company made miniatures of all the Star Trek spaceships. So you could buy all the ships in the Franz Joseph technical manual. And then they made a whole line of other ships, Klingon ships, Romulan ships, and they were miniatures, and you can buy them. And these were all legally obtainable because they were sold in gaming stores. So there, there was a rich history of unlicensed Star Trek product because nobody would ever make these kinds of things officially. And industrious fans would make them. And you could buy all kinds of things, props, uniforms, a lot of things, because there was no understanding at that time that you could make any money off this, that you could license. It really wasn't until George Lucas proved it when Star Wars came out and became the marketing juggernaut that it is, uh, making literally billions, tens of billions of dollars on product. Mm -hmm. But Star Trek always inspired throughout its rich history. People wrote unlicensed novels. There were fanzines published. And in 1976, Bantam Books published a book called an anthology called Star Trek The New Voyages that was a compilation of fan-written short stories that were called together by these two women, Sandra Marshak and Myrna Colbraith, who edited the book. And Gene Roddenberry wrote the foreword to this collection of fan stories oh, wow. that was now being officially released. So the creator of Star Trek wrote this beautiful foreword where he thought one of the most amazing things to come out of Star Trek, which, remember was a failed television show. It was canceled after its third season, and it only ran three seasons because of a huge fan letter-writing campaign that saved the show from being canceled in its second season, and NBC gave it a third season. So fans saved Star Trek back in the 60s. Roddenberry wrote this introduction saying they loved fan fiction. They couldn't believe that people were so inspired by their love of Star Trek to create all of this rich tapestry of material from that was inspired by the show, because that had never happened before. You know, nobody is going to dragnet conventions or or <laughs> I, yeah. you know nobody's going to I Dream of Genie conventions or <laughs> Gilligan's Island conventions. I mean, no one's writing Gilligan's Island fan fiction or or making Gilligan's Isle, Island models of the the, the place they live. Star Trek was. Right. I, I feel like I, I don't want to tell your lawyer what to do, and this is not advice or anything. I'm just putting that in the disclaimer. I feel like that forward should be evidence <laughs> in, well, no, uh, no. in this. It's funny you say that because I did send that forward to our lawyer, Aaron Ranahan, and in the last filing from our side, she included it. So, oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Uh, so Yeah, and, and it's it's the kind of thing. So, so you know, what, what has happened – Star Trek fan filmmaking is just the the current in a long line, a fifty a rich fifty year history of fan produced material right. based on Star Trek. 
So yeah, the this the fan filmmaking has always been a part of the culture, and up until recently, it sounds like it's been something that the Star Trek people have sort of given their blessing to. And now, in terms of specifics, I don't want to get you into any kind of trouble by going into the particulars of the Axonar lawsuit. So let's talk more. I actually wasn't named, so um, I am not a part of the lawsuit. So I I I, I don't. To be quite honest, I don't talk to the lawyers, and I'm not privy to the conversations they have with my partner in this, uh, Alec Peters. Mm-hmm. But I, but I hear it peripherally. So. Sure. Okay. So what what I think is a, a more interesting focus because it's you know kind of the hot news right now are these fan film guidelines that they released earlier this week. These things are are so burdensome. The way that they're written, it would basically shut down all the fan films that have been created or are in progress. Uh, can you talk about some of the specific guidelines that are most burdensome for you as a fan film director well i'll tell you one of the fan film guidelines says that anyone who's ever worked for cbs or paramount in the past not necessarily on star trek cannot make a fan film which they have banned me for life from ever making a star trek fan film that feels very targeted yeah oh and it even says specifically if you've worked on their dvds (laughs) oh Hey, Robert, thanks for everything you've done for us. Uh, don't make any fan films. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing about here's, – here's what I find very interesting. I mean the top – the two best, I think, fan film productions, there's Star Trek New Voyages and Star Trek Continues, which, which sort of copied what New Voyages did because there was a big rift within that community. I mean Christopher Guest, the director who made – movies like best in show yeah yeah should absolutely make a movie about the the unrest in the star trek fan film community by its top creators i i that would I, be a good christopher it, guest movie galaxy unrest would be the title i would go with <laughs> but but um so so these two groups uh both have painstaking recreations exact recreations of the original series sets props and costumes and they have been putting out wonderful episodes uh of the continuation of the five-year mission of of the original series because star trek only ran three years but they famously talk of a five-year mission so these star trek the new voyages has been around for a decade and star trek continues has been around for a few years now and both are making hour-long episodes that carry on with various people that are playing Kirk, Spock, and McCoy that are on the Enterprise, and they both call themselves Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is, everything in them is a complete recreation of the original series. They have never been targeted. Indeed, James Cauley, the empresario, oh, I call him the Yuri Gagarin of Star Trek fan films. Nice reference. <laughs> He's the head of Star Trek New Voices, and he was the first kid on the block. He was actually an extra in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek 2009. So they brought him over. And and Vic Mignogna, who plays Captain Kirk on Star Trek Continues, is the voice of Captain Kirk in Star Trek Online, which is their official MMORG. Yeah. So there has has been a lot of crossover. And James Cawley was the first fan filmmaker to hire Walter Koenig and hired George Takei to come back and play Chekhov and Sulu again in their fan film productions. Oh, cool. So, you know, this is not 
Star Trek fan films on a that are being made on a professional level is are nothing new. They've been around for a long time. Indeed, they had when you when you're when you're the grandfather of Star Trek fan films, when James Colley is asked to be an extra in Star Trek 09, that is sort of a tacit pat on the back from both J.J. Abrams and the studio itself. But the way that these guidelines are structured, all of these fan films that up until now have sort of gotten a tacit blessing from the big guys, those are all would have to be shut down because they don't meet the guidelines. Right. right. I mean, first of all, I, I don't think I think the draconian guidelines to me, I'm I'm I was raised Jewish. And when I read those guidelines, I couldn't help but think about the tax laws that were levied against Jewish businesses in 1930s Germany that were basically designed to be so draconian as to not you could not do business under them right. and Jewish businesses some that were hundreds of years old uh, they all had to shutter their doors and and these fan film guidelines are meant to do one thing they are meant to make fan film something there is a perception there is this weird perception that lately I've been hearing it that fan films are supposed to be made by people in their garages by friends in homemade uniforms and homemade props uh, that should be somehow like a school play. Right. And right. Here's the thing. Star Trek fans never have ever been that way. They have always tried, whether they were making technical manuals or blueprints or prop replicas or model kits, they were always trying to make the best product they could. They wanted to recreate the Franz Joseph technical manual, but they wanted to do it themselves. When when Round 2, um, which is a model kit company, um, they used to be called Polar Lights. When they released the – a couple years ago, they released – about a decade ago, actually. They released a one-thousandth one scale model of the Enterprise. Well, a bunch of uh, what are called garage kit companies, which are – people that make model kits in their garages to sell for the 100 people that buy them started making a range of one one-thousandth scale Starship models. Some were based on those old gaming miniatures from the 70s. So uh, there's a long line of garage kit Star Trek model kit makers that were making one one-thousandth scale models that they would never license to a company because nobody there's not enough people that would buy them. Right. But Garage kit filmmakers or garage kit model makers are so passionate about this, and they have a fan base of their hundred people that these Star Trek model kit makers that you can go look at their work on Hobby Talk um, or Resin Illuminati, which is a great Star Trek or space science fiction model website. You know, fans are serving other fans by doing these things. Well, the same was true of fan films. People, when you're making a movie, you're trying to make the best slickest, most professional-looking episode that you can. Yeah. If you look at Star Trek Continues' new new episode, which I think is probably their best, uh, it's called Less Do You Get Between the Dragons or something, it's great. I mean, it looks like you're watching a classic Star Trek episode, aside from the fact that the actors playing Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Scotty are not the real actors, although the actor they have playing Scotty is James Doohan's son. Uh, yeah, I did read that. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> he looks exactly like Scotty. And if you watch these episodes, they look beautiful. They yeah. look like classic Star Trek episodes. The reason this whole thing happened, however, is our fan film raised $1.2 million. 
via crowd. <laughs> we made a, a short film called Prelude to Axanar that was trying to do something very different. It was outside of the box. We were trying to tell a Star Trek story that had never been told before with brand new characters that you'd never met before with a few other Trek characters as well that came from the original series and from Enterprise. And um, we were trying to do something new, set 21 years before the original series. But we raised so much money that suddenly people started looking at us like, oh, my God, how did you do this? And, and when you're raising $1.2 million, you've moved beyond a fan film. But the fact is, the movie, the money that we raised was given to us by fans. And ultimately, the movie that we were in the process of making would be given away for free on the Internet. There is uh. absolutely no commercial value to the movie that we're making. And by the way, the other big Star Trek fan film projects... Star Trek New Voyages, Star Trek Continues, Star Trek Renegades, they all crowdfunded money and made tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. But they, too, give away their films for free on the Internet. Dave and I completely agree with you that these guidelines seem to have the effect of, you know, whether even though they don't say it explicitly, they just shut down all of the existing fan films because right. they can't meet these requirements. And... Um, it sort of had my colleague and I engaged in a mild form of protest, um, in which we, uh, we, we created a hashtag on Twitter called Trek fan film guidelines in which we, uh, came up with other fan film guidelines that are similarly ridiculous and burdensome as the ones released by Paramount and CB CBS. And since you are the Star Trek Axonar fan film director and a big time Trekkie, um, we think you would be in the best position to let us know which of our parody guidelines is the funniest. So we want to read a bunch of these to you rapid fire. We'll just do one after another. And we want you to rate each one on a scale of one to 10, 10 being your favorite. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. All right. Let's put Sweet. some, let's put some music behind this. Alrighty. All right. First one. Klingons may only be portrayed by duct taping live turtles to the heads of amateur actors. <laughs> I'll give that a seven. Ooh, good start. All right, that's the baseline. All right. All right, okay. Authentic Klingon masks prohibited. Actors must squeeze their forehead with their hands instead. <laughs> How about a five? Ooh, okay. A five. Ooh, going down. I, I like we make it, we get them giggling. Yeah, yeah. To ensure authenticity, all deep space scenes must be shot on location. <laughs> you know what? I'll give that a ten because that's exactly something they would have put in those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ten. All right. Well, that's reasonable. Yeah. All right. Phaser sound effects prohibited. Actors must make pew pew sound with their mouths instead. I'll give that an eight. Ooh, yeah. nice. Um, no references to impulse or warp engines may be used. All propulsion must be by oars. <laughs> well, they did say they wanted to go back to the beginning. So, yeah, I'll give that a nine. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. No holodeck allowed. Only cardboard boxes, pillows, and the power of imagination can be used. That's 10. Yeah. All right. That's mine, too. That's good. That was one of yours. All right. Um, <laughs> fan film plot lines may only involve characters seeking out old life and old civilizations. <laughs> That's a 10. Yeah. <laughs> only one fan film shall be approved. Winning director will be chosen by Botleth Deathmatch. <laughs> oh, no, no. That would be illegal according to their fan film. Oh, right. Oh, you're, you're, oh, you're, oh, you're right. Yep. Bird. Bird. 
Twitter is, of course, illegal, which means, uh-oh, you can't. You can't. So I'm going to give that a zero. Oh, yeah. oh. Technicality, zero. Yeah. Your, film, your film is not allowed to feature space, ships, or any trekking through stars of any kind. <laughs> That's right up there. I'll give that one an eight and a half. Right. Eight and a half. Okay. Right. No mention of the neutral zone is allowed. Only a eh, whatever zone. <laughs> Uh, eight. Eight. All right. I feel like overall these are pretty solid. Like, yeah, yeah. good stuff. I, All right. I, uh, the comedy, you guys, Ryan and Dave's comedy stylings very much uh, fit right in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, we reserve the right to send Jonathan Frakes to your set to eat all of your craft services. <laughs> Oh, I <laughs> know. Uh, I feel bad about that one. I wrote that one. I feel bad. My apologies to Jonathan Frakes. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met. And he's he's got a great television correct, uh, directing career, so he could probably tell you which studio has the best craft service. <laughs> cool. All right. All, right. Uh, all fan films must be no less than five minutes and no more than four minutes. Oh, yeah, that's right up there. I'll give that one a nine. All right. Um, plot lines must only involve characters meekly going where people have gone before. <laughs> That's another good one. I'll give that a, an eight. All right. Uh, the transporter effect may only be depicted via a leaf blower and a five-pound bucket of glitter. Yeah, but I can make that work. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give that one. That's just, you know what? That's just a creative challenge. Yeah. I'll All right. Nine. And, and, and finally, no... Uh, you know, why don't you just make a Star Wars fan film? Stop wasting our time. Well, you know, I'll tell you, the Star Wars, uh, uh, the custodians of the Star Wars franchise really understand uh, fan films. They, as a matter of fact, they have their own fan film guidelines, but only if you want to enter their Star Wars fan film contest. Oh. They, they actually, not only do they support fan films, but they pick their favorites and put them out on Blu-ray when they officially released episodes one through six a couple of years ago uh -huh. on Blu-ray, they included the best fan films in that package. Oh, they wow. released them commercially, commercially, including my good buddy uh, Kevin Rubio's famous Star Wars fan film, Troops, which was based on cops. Oh, Troops, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That now, troops, troops was actually, what I loved about Troops, it's a brilliant example of fan filmmaking because not only does it work as a parody of cops, but it still works in the continuity of the Star Wars universe. It gives you backstory into what happened to Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru right. from Star Wars. And so Dave's smiling over here because now you're getting into Star Wars, which is yeah. his thing. <laughs> oh, I mean, I love Star Wars. I saw Empire Strikes Back 26 times in the theater when it was originally. Oh, nice. Oh, see, now, now I feel like a schmuck. That I've only I, I said like I saw Force Awakens in theaters five times. Now I feel like slacker. A bad, yeah, I feel like a bad person now. <laughs> well, no, no, no. But Empire Strikes Back was way better than the Force Awakens. Well, that's true. Yes, but unfortunately, I I was born in 1985, so that wasn't an option. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking Back to the Future came out, so that's a good year to be born. But, in. And actually, it was quite funny. My birthday is October 27. He went back in time, October 26, 85. So it's kind of like, whoa, that's cool. Yeah, that's, but no, yeah, that's but awesome. you know. The, the real, I think the real sad part about these fan film guidelines is, once again, Star Trek fandom is misunderstood. And, and ultimately, uh, as it has been, I mean, I grew up being called a Trekkie, you know, people that knew. It used to be a disparaging comment before the geek singularity happened, and now everybody's a geek and it's all cool. 
Star Trek fandom was the first openly mocked fandom. Right, yeah. Uh, and so for a lot of my life, I was in the closet, so to speak, about <laughs> how extreme my Star Trek fandom really was. And now I think the, the supreme example, it's very difficult to make a movie. And it's even more difficult to make a good film. And with the technology that is now available to people, uh, celebrating Star Trek in this way, it is, it is energy, it is creative energy and creative thought and creative, the, the industry of this kind of creativity should be harnessed, exalted, celebrated, and shared. And if they were smart, like what Gene Roddenberry did when he wrote his foreword to Star Trek The New Voyages in 76, the custodians of the franchise, CBS that owns all the underlying rights to Star Trek, they didn't even create that. They inherited these rights back in 2005. Um, they should be ashamed of themselves for doing this to a fan base that has kept their that have kept these underlying rights valuable in the first place. Now, there's a lot of people that would come out and say, well, they own it, they can do whatever they want with it. Well, that's true. But they would be worthless. Those rights would be worthless without the fan base that has been there for 50 years. Yep. And these movies that people are making out of nothing but love, there is no commercial value to these final these these movies that were made. None. And when they're given away... They're given away for free. Now, and, and then people go make more of them. What CBS should have done is they should license these films. They should put them on. They have a, they have a new streaming. They're, they're putting out their own streaming uh, uh, channel, CBS All Access. And they're going to charge people six bucks a month to get access to the brand new Star Trek TV show that I can't tell you how excited I am about that Brian Fuller is producing. Brian Fuller, who produced Hannibal and actually worked on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager. But why not put all these fan films on the fan film channel and curate them? You know, have somebody like 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 Robert Osborne, who's on the Turner Classic Movies, have, have the Robert Osborne of Star Trek host <laughs> a fan film channel where they celebrate this and they encourage it. Because what those guidelines do is people say, oh, you have to be creative and work around those no, no, no. Those those fan film guidelines are censorship of the worst kind. They are they absolutely stifle all creativity because they're not based on Star Trek. Star Trek continues and Star Trek New Voyages are trying to make Star Trek episodes. Now, no one will ever mistake them as the original, but they're following the format the same way that people that were making Star Trek blueprints starting in the 70s we're following the format set by the Star Trek technical manual and the Star Trek blueprints of the Enterprise. They were emulating those. Star Trek fan filmer, filmmakers are emulating what they've seen previously in Star Trek. And basically what those fan film guidelines do is say you can no longer do that. You can no longer look to the very thing that you love to guide your creative process. Here, we are now going to tell you what you can and can't do creatively. You can't have alcohol. Really? How many episodes of Star Trek are people drinking things? Yeah. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. Scotty is a, is a connoisseur of, of, of liquor. You know, Dr. McCoy drinks mint juleps and, and makes a mean martini. I mean, you know, it's, it's incredible. The idea, too, that they've infantilized Star Trek. 
You know, they've made it. It's like, you you know, you fan filmmakers, you guys should only be kids. Only kids should be making fan films. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. It's insulting. It's maddening. But whatever, that is our corporate future. You know? Well, you know, and... Um... You know, we, we're going to be watching uh, this uh, lawsuit closely, and hopefully that uh, Axonar and uh, you guys and the team could prevail. So that way, you know what, the kids that are coming up now have the ability to be creative, have the ability to love this show, love the series, the movies, the, 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 the universe created by Gene Roddenberry so long ago, and actually continue into this uh, creative, uh, you know, endeavor of theirs. So, you know, we're going to be watching and, you know... We're, yeah, Robert, yeah. we'd love to have you on. Yeah. Uh, we love trekking out with you. This is awesome. Uh, we hope we can have you on again more often under better circumstances because yeah. uh, we've just really enjoyed this. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, you know, come on. This is a lot of fun. I, this is the first time I've actually been able to talk about the fan film guidelines. And it's, it's just, you know, I think it's really sad. I think, once again, they were made by people that don't make films. Yeah. Why do you yeah. make films? All right, Robert, and, yeah. uh, thank you so much for being on with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you very much. Thanks very much.